Evan Melville was very handsome. Evan Melville's the most fantastic. He's got a good head of hair on him. He's got little smoochy lips. Looks like blue eyes and what golden hair. Hawthorne isn't even hot. He looks like a cowboy. He looks like whatever the Wario of Mark Twain would be. <laughs> yeah, he is a bit like Mark Twain's Wario, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe if he like, sorted his hair out, he'd look good. Maybe cut the moustache off. Tweeze them eyebrows. Melville's got a lot going on, is what I'm saying. Not that I've spent a lot of time looking at his pictures. Mm-hmm. Posters. Mm-hmm. Right next to Russo. I've seen the drawing. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen your deviant art fan page. Yeah. Well, that was a very lovely jaunt into who's fuckable 19th century edition. Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Knees up Mother Brown over here is Daniel. Let's get it started, and here <laughs> is Abby. That's the cognate? Yeah, I think it is, isn't it? <laughs> so, welcome to season five, everybody. How was your Christmas? Very nice, thank you. And you? Yeah, it was good. It was quiet. I workshopped a lot of these jokes to my houseplants. I'll mm. probably get the same reaction. Whee. So, normally, this is when I would ask Daniel to read some letters, except... Okay, right here. No? Oh, Except we are actually launching a new satellite show called Save Me From My Shelf Bookends. I can't believe I came up with that really good title. And I came up with Save Me From My Shelf, didn't I? Those were both me. Oh, right. Okay, I thought that that was my idea. Okay, carry on. So we're going to release this satellite show the week after every proper episode. So you'll be getting this next Wednesday. And that show is where we're going to move all of our letters and recommendations. That's where we're going to talk about, you know, current books that we're reading or films we're watching, just general media we're taking in. And we're going to do a bad Goodreads segment for all of our early episodes that never had one. So if you remember, we introduced bad Goodreads only with Jekyll and Hyde at the very end of season two. So we have quite a bit to catch up on. We also do have other updates about how this show is going to change this year. So last year, we did one long season through the whole course of 2023, and Daniel and I took some flexible breaks when we needed them. And that did work really well, but we sort of realized that it was nowhere near enough. So for season five, we are going to be doing one long season again through the whole of 2024, but we do have to reduce our episode schedule down to one proper episode per month. Now, stick with me on this because that's not... That's not actually as infrequent as I've made it sound. It is actually going to be more than that, so just bear with me for a second. But first, I wanted to... No, I'm turning this off immediately. (laughs) Do you think people are doing that? In their droves. Don't say that. I'm genuinely nervous. (laughs) I'm genuinely worried about that. No, no, it's fine. So I wanted to walk you through the reasons why we had to do this. And there are two big reasons, the first of which is time. So we've talked about our production schedule on this show before and how we have just no downtime between episodes on a, you know, every other week schedule. 
So when we were coming back from breaks last year, we were realizing we're coming back, creating much better episodes and just generally being a lot happier to record because we weren't so exhausted. I mean, Daniel and I have jobs, we have family stuff, we have lots of elements of life that we don't really talk to you guys about on the show, and it can sometimes make scheduling really difficult. We love doing the show, and we want to do it in a sustainable way rather than coming to resent it. The other big issue is financial. So this show has expenses, and it used to be that our university could cover all of those. That funding is no longer available. So we can kind of only make the shows that we can fund that don't put us in debt. And Daniel and I saw this coming our way a while back. That's why we started the Patreon last year, just to keep the lights on. So we wanted to just give a big thank you to the Patreons. Yes, thank uh, you. Just because like, you guys are really like keeping this afloat in a very material way. I don't think we could do the show now without you because the funding just isn't there anymore. No pressure. <laughs> Now, okay, so having said all of that, you're not going to just be getting the 12 episodes, I promised, over the whole year. So looking at our schedule, I can see there are at least a couple of episodes that are two-parters, and perhaps one that might even be a three-parter. And when we do two-parters, we wouldn't make you guys wait a whole month to find out what happens. We would release that on a normal fortnightly schedule. So when you add to that the bookend satellite show coming weeks after the normal episode, there are going to be some months for you guys where you have an episode from us every single week, which is more than you know we're doing currently. So we are going to release a proper new episode, whichever Wednesday of the month is closest to the 15th. You know, we, we're trying to plan it for the middle of the month. Then the Wednesday after that, you'll get our bookends episode. And we really do appreciate you guys understanding we want to produce better and funnier episodes, and we hope we can do that now that we have the space to work on them more. So with that said, shall we get on with the show? I'm a bit tired now, actually. I didn't even do anything, but... <laughs> you have not done one goddamn thing. Contributed nothing as per. Um... <laughs> well, here's your chance to shine, Daniel. So, uh, friend, what is our text today? The year 1850. The place, the United States. Senators Henry Clay and Stephen A. Douglas are working together on a great compromise between the free states of the North and the southern slave states over the expansion west in yet another attempt to abate civil war. Yet, as we all know, these measures can only prolong the agony for so long, and in many senses they even aggravate them. Not long from now, it looks like it's Splitsville for the USA. How could it be that this sacred union, made before God, is now falling apart? They, you know, they once seemed so happy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> time to look all the way back to the beginning, to that very first meeting between pie-eyed hopeful colonists and a virgin continent. Or was it a virgin? <laughs> Daniel! <laughs> Let's find out in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. So it should go without saying, we're about to spoil this text for you. In terms of the content, there's blackmail, a lot of general patriarchy, lots of guilt and souls in torment, death, isolation, gaslighting, and a bit of carving stuff into one's skin. All right, on to some background. Yeah. Nathaniel Hawthorne was an American novelist. He was from Salem, Massachusetts. Friend of the podcast, isn't it, Salem? 
He was born in 1804 to a well-established family of New Englanders. So one of his ancestors was actually a judge at the Salem Witch Trials. So Nathaniel Hawthorne is one of the frozen chosen, as they call them. Don't get that. Because <laughs> it's cold, but you're one of God's chosen prodies. Is, is that a thing people say? Yes! The frozen ch- About Protestants? Yes! But nonetheless, he was pretty upper middle class. And he was a, a university chum of future president Franklin Pierce. The most memorable president. What's the Simpsons? I don't uh, know, Daniel. You tell me. Adequate, forgettable, occasionally regrettable <laughs> caretaker presidents of the USA. Um, yeah. So, anyway. Jesus Christ. It's a good bit. <laughs> Throughout his life, Hawthorne worked in various government roles. These include customs officer, and that comes up in the Scarlet Letter, surveyor, and US consul in Liverpool. So, alongside his official career, Hawthorne was a writer. He initially published short stories in various periodicals in the 1830s and 40s, and he started writing novels with the Scarlet Letter in 1850. Few others, Blythdale Romance, House of Mirth. No, that's not him. That's Edith Wharton. House of the Seven Gables. Thank you, yeah. Um, Which was also about Puritans. (laughs) And memory and stuff, isn't it? That's the big thing about Hawthorne, isn't it? He's a kind of, sort of a romantic with a capital R, kind of leaning maybe even into Gothic, isn't he, I would say. House of the Seven Gables definitely is like half a Gothic novel. This isn't. No. So he draws from the history of, and culture of New England, its Puritan legacy, and its contemporary craze for transcendental philosophy. You know, Emerson and all that lot. And in, in this respect, Hawthorne's writing explores psychological themes, like the power of guilt and memory, and he does so in this very kind of meditative, maybe even overwrought, allegorical and poetical way. It's worth mentioning, I think, that Hawthorne was a very close friend of Herman Melville. Very close friend. Well, exactly. What was going on there? They were both married to ladies, but some people think there was a bit more to it than that. We don't know whether anything was going on between them, but it seemed more like Melville, at the very least, was pushing for them to be right. Uh, I think that's the sort of... It's fairly well documented through his letters and fairly openly accepted that, at the very least, Herman Melville was in love with Nathaniel Hawthorne, that there Mm. was a... Yeah. Um, but yeah, in any case, I think they are definitely kindred spirits in terms of their like literary style and, and the kind of philosophical themes that they cover. You all like do this at A-level or something, or whatever the American version is, right? Oh, God, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do this in high school, like just about everyone. It's like The Great Gatsby. Everyone has to read this at some point. I don't want to hedge the um, analysis section, but I, that seems crazy to me because this seems like such a complex work. I would not wish this on high schoolers. Well, let's get to it then. All right. Let's go then. Okay. Yeah, okay. So the book <laughs> opens with... Sorry, start again. I okay. was laughing. So the book opens with this quite long introduction. It's more like a kind of little short story in itself, isn't it? 40 pages long, uh, called The Custom House. And so it's this kind of autobiographical account of Hawthorne's own experiences of working in this customs office in, in Salem. This is such a weird way to start the book. And I'm not going to say that this customs house bit doesn't have value because it does and it does have resonant thematic bits and it is interesting. But this starts off the novel so slowly. It's like watching a sunflower rotate its disgusting head towards the sun. (laughs) What is happening with this glacier of melting bullshit? To me, it felt more like, you know, when you get like a cartoon before the main feature, you know? It felt like completely autonomous. Yeah, and, yeah. Although, as we'll see, it's not, but it, it felt it. Hawthorne talks about how Salem's sort of docks are very dilapidated, you know, got bygone splendor of 
the Salem shipping industry and everything. He talks about this kind of um, statue of the great American eagle over the custom house door. And so the implication is that this is going to be a big commentary on America. Anyway, Hawthorne just talks about this like feeling of... It's classic, it's classic office stuff, isn't it? Uh, about just feeling bored and trapped and you know, not having a kind of very fulfilling life working at this office in Salem. Yeah, I thought you might like all this bureaucracy stuff. You have a real uh, municipality fetish. So anyway, Hawthorne, after this very long opening bit, says, One rainy day when he was working as a young man in this customs house, he got bored and he started poking around a room that had all of this forgotten junk in it. And as he digs through a desk, he finds this old envelope containing a written record of the early days of Massachusetts. And he finds something else as well, this old, frayed, but once beautiful embroidered badge. And it has a big red letter A on it. How strange. And he can sort of sense that this badge with the letter A is special, that it must be treasured, like it's a Charles and Diana commemorative plate. Ooh, yeah. So what follows is the tale that Hawthorne apparently found. And I mean, this is all bollocks. He wrote it. He didn't find it. But, you know, he's pretending that he's just a, a mere editor. But, um, you know, the story, it's been carefully preserved for 200 years, so it better be a f***ing banger. Really hope this isn't your garden variety puritanical sex bummer. Well, let's see. We open in Boston, 1642. I always thought this was set in Salem. Yes, you would uh, think. Especially because he has that big opening passage about, oh, I'm in Salem. This is the history of Salem. Oh, my legacy in Salem. And then he's like, now Boston. The founders of this town thought it would be a utopia, but you know what? Utopia, that means no place. <laughs> so despite their best intentions, the Puritan fathers still had to build a cemetery and a jail. And because it's Boston, eventually 1,700 Dunkin' Donuts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so we open with this huge crowd in front of the jail. And we get a little bit of a commentary here first of many, on how old England has carried over to New England. Quote, Like all that pertains to crime, it, the jail, seemed never to have known a youthful era. The fact that jails are the Wilfred Brimley of infrastructure is kind of a weird take. Was Wilfred Brimley? <laughs> he was the diabetes guy, and he has always looked like he was 68 years the old. The diabetes guy? What's that? You don't know Wilfred Brimley. Look him up later. Has he got diabetes? Well, not now. He's dead. Because he went to Dunkin' Donuts too much. <laughs> the point is, crime is a social construct with a long history. But anyway, enough of that. The narrator notices a lovely rose bush growing next to the prison. He plucks a rose and offers it to the reader as a sign of good and moral things to come out of this ugly tale. That's weird, isn't it? What if I refuse the rose? This isn't The Bachelor. Okay. So, what's with all the severe-looking people gathered around the jail? What are we doing today, folks? Are we whipping a child? Are we hanging an old widow because she's quarrelsome? Mm -hmm. Are we driving away a Native American just cause? Well, normally yes, says the narrator, but not today. And why are the women of the town so interested in what's happening? Well, it's because it's a woman getting punished. This woman was a, quote, malfactress. Shouldn't it be female factress? Just came up with that. Yeah, when you read it, it looks like it says male factress. Don't work. Don't work. I'll just stop. Carry on. 
and she's a quote naughty baggage. What they're saying is this woman is a junior varsity slut, and her name is Hester Prynne. I like the sound of naughty baggage. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my sort of thing. I would love to be called a naughty baggage. That's, that's charming. Yeah, I've got a lot of naughty baggage. <laughs> that's something you would say if you're trying to sleep with your therapist. <laughs> So Hester's crime is clapping them cheeks outside a wedlock, which is forbidden in Puritan society. Some of the women in town think Hester's gotten away with adultery way too easily. All these town magistrates are going to do is make Hester wear a big scarlet letter A sewn onto her gowns. But that's it? Why, if we women were in charge, we'd brand the letter A into her forehead. You know what I'd do? I'd, um... If someone branded an A on my forehead, I'd like finish it off with the four H E D. So it just like <laughs> I was labeling my own forehead. And that's how you get around that. And to think of poor Reverend Dimsdale, our beloved minister, fretting over the scandal that's coming to his congregation. Here comes Hester, sprung from the big house. <laughs> and she's carrying a three month old baby. Hester, she is, I don't mean to tell you, fabulous. She is. <laughs> Hot, she walks proud, she's dressed in pretty nice duds. Way too nice for what's normally allowed in a Puritan colony. Maybe that's punishment. You go to jail, you wear a really nice kit. That would be punishment for you. We know you're allergic to luxury. And for a Puritan, because I am a bit. As we all know I'm a member of the elect, so. <laughs> anyway, even her punishment is fabulous. She got to sew the big letter A badge, so she's embroidered it very elaborately with gold embellishments. Um. Say what I wrote. She's serving. She's working with a Q. Yas queen. Oh, yes. <laughs> Put the A in yas, isn't it? Big embroidered A. <laughs> What's working with a Q, then? Is that... Working means attitude right. and, and being fabulous and bringing a lot of energy to it. So, Horzo never actually tells us directly that... Hester has had sex out of wedlock. He's very delicate about it, but we can obviously pick this up from various clues, including the big A on her chest. They never say in the book the word adultery. We, it's never explicitly told what A stands for. Arsehole. Could just be that. It could be, she's yeah. She's a <laughs> so Hester goes to the scaffold. This is also part of her punishment, isn't it? She, you know, It's not just a, a cushy letter A. So, so she goes to the scaffold and she needs to stand there on the pillory for a few hours so everyone in town can see her shame and possibly throw cabbages at her or some new world vegetables. Potato. <laughs> um, she talks about how they don't do that. They don't do that. And she wishes they would. She's like, wouldn't it be great if they were French and they would make a day out of it and throw some tomatoes and you laugh You can really hurt yourself. But, but she's saying... People refer bricks and stuff. But she was saying it was worse... Like, Hester thinks it's worse to have them all there and be silent and just stare at her rather than making merry at her. I think expensive. I prefer that than have someone throw a big Savoy cabbage at me. <laughs> Hester zones out, goes into her mind palace. Let me forewarn you, Rita, there's a lot of people zoning out and going into their mind palace, isn't there? <laughs> so you know on, like, Twitter or wherever, when somebody post something inflammatory or controversial and then they're like muting this in the replies that's what the hester's doing she thinks about her previous life in england her parents her childhood home and a certain old misshapen scholar who was important to her life hmm i wonder who this guy is and will we get any more of him foreshadowing horn please all of a sudden hester sees something 
A Native American joins the crowd. Okay, pretty common around these parts, nothing remarkable there. But with him is someone strange. It's a white man, but he's dressed half in European clothing, half in indigenous dress, and he's kind of sinister about it. He's, he's dressed like they would dress a villain on Yellowstone. So he's not working it. He's not working, he's not serving, no king. Okay. But the weirdness of his outfit can't hide a slight disability. He has a misshapen shoulder, which I guess is like scoliosis or something. Hester panics because she recognizes him. You know that old scholar from her memory? Yes. Five seconds ago? It's this guy! The guy kind of sneers at her from the edge of the crowd, and he puts a finger up to his lips. You best not tell who I am, Hester. So while she stands there, sweating it out all afternoon on the scaffold, my dude then goes around town and he puts on this whole act. Who's that lady over there? What happened to her? What did you say her name was? Esther Prine? Oh, oh, Hester Prynne, okay. I'm a stranger to these parts after getting shipwrecked, and I've been chilling with the Wampanoag or whatever ever since I got Life of Pied. And the townsfolk are like, Okay, Dances with Wolves, here's the backstory. This Hester Prynne lady was married to this old scholar, and he wanted to move to our colony, so he sent his pretty young wife ahead to sort out a house for them while he tidied up his affairs in Europe. She's been here for years now, and her husband never showed. We don't even know if he's still alive. He probably got shipwrecked on the voyage over, just like you did, stranger. Mm. Anyway... Hester apparently boinked someone else, and now she has a baby, and she won't tell us who done it. Or, as Daniel wrote, who did her. <laughs> the father of the kid would be punished too, but she won't give him up. So we canceled her, we've canceled her baby, we'd cancel the guy if we knew who he was, and we are simply gagging for some sort of 23andMe ancestry reveal. I don't think she did anything wrong. He could be dead. They even said that. He could be dead. They, they actually, in the 1994 movie, they address this better with like what the actual law was, where they know there's been a shipwreck. She knows her husband was on that boat, but because there's no body, he can't be declared dead. So she and Dimsdale are like, how long do we have to wait legally? Right. And it's seven years. And she's like, mama's got to get her freak on. I can't wait seven years. No. Okay, that makes more sense. Anyway, the whole town is speculating on the identity of this mysterious shadow figure, this Kaiser Soze of boinking. <laughs> the governor comes, he addresses Hester. You're a wrong in love, he's like, <laughs> and they, um, they don't talk like... What? Actually, they, they're all from Lincolnshire, aren't they? Wouldn't you be all like, yeah, you're yeah, wrong in love. You tell me, Daniel. I've, I'm not au fait with the Lincolnshire accent East Midlands, I don't know. It's kind of half East Midlands, half East Anglia. You know? Is it like an evil version of your accent? No. Then he addresses Reverend Dimsdale, who's standing in the crowd. He's like, come on, man, it's your job to make her confess. And Dimsdale, he's this young, hotshot religious guy. He studied at Oxford, and he's taken that, he's been very generous, giving that the Russell Group education to go and preach to the beavers and otters of the <laughs> northern American continent. And he's a good guy, too, and he's such a good guy. Um, his religious fervor makes people think he sounds like an angel. <laughs> yeah, like, that's, no, that's, uh, what's his face? Tootie Fruity, isn't it? <laughs> Richard. <Little> Richard. <laughs> he was a vicar, though, or is a vicar? He's dead now, isn't he? Dimsdale begs Hester to reveal her conspirator. 
Clear your own guilt and save this man from adding hypocrisy to his sin. Do you know what I would do if I were Hester? Go on. And everyone's begging me to say who the baby daddy is. And then there's this jerk up there, the governor being like, you're evil. I'd be like, then why do I have your child, governor? I'd just be a full agent of mm. chaos. I would just try to oust powerful men from their positions. Because oh, yeah. what do I have to lose? So Hester shakes her head. Quote, my child must seek a heavenly father. She will never know an earthly one. So that's pretty baller, ain't it? <laughs> yeah. Is. She's like, hit the bricks, neck ruffle. Then, you know, Hester goes back into her mind palace and tunes all these big buckled dorks out. Uh, I didn't write that line. <laughs> Hester goes back to prison for a little bit and she lets her guard down and she's in a bit of a state, isn't she? She's got a bit of the old histrionics, you know, women. <laughs> Apparently, shame can be transmitted through breast milk because the baby gets agitated too. It's not like a baby ever just randomly started crying. <laughs> uh, and the only conclusion is that it drank in its mother's humiliation or something like that. So they go and get a doctor. Oh, guess who the closest doctor is? Who? That weird man in the half-native garb. In case it's been not made clear, the new doctor in this strange half-indigenous dress is Hester's long-lost husband, who did in fact get shipwrecked on the way over, but survived. And he was in fact a doctor and a scholar back in Europe. So he's like, okay, I'll pick up the old trade here. So her husband's like, who did it, Hester? Who f***ed my wife straight in the heart? (laughs) As per, she's like, not telling, mate. Then he gets a bit maudlin, they have a bit of a moment, and he's like, how could you betray me? I know I was an ugly old nerd, but I thought that maybe my cool knowledge of herbology could trick you into thinking I was hot. And Hester's like, yeah, dude, you were a creepy old man and I was a teenager. The only thing you should have been flirting with was death. (laughs) I never pretended to love you, but you insisted on marrying me anyway, and my parents kind of gave me to you. He then gives her some medicine for her and the baby, and Hester asks if it's poison, and he's like, No, love, I have much better ways of punishing you. I'm gonna sniff out who your lover is. I'll be able to sense it, because I'm a bloodhound of the soul. Mm. Also, I'm going by the name Roger Chillingworth now, instead of Relentless Prin or Unyielding Prin, one of those Puritan names. We never find out what his real first name was, do we? Oh, like Increase and things. (laughs) Increase was a Puritan, wasn't And you better not narc about my identity. I simply couldn't bear the shame and the pitying looks the townsfolk would give me if they knew what a dirty skank I had for a wife. Bye, honey. Enjoy the clink. Also, what medicine do you think he gave her? Because it does, it works. It calms her and the kid down. But I'm like, what's the 17th century answer to Zoloft? So the narrator speculates about why Hester, when she found out she was pregnant, Why she didn't go away to live with the indigenous population, like assuming they'd have her, or book it back to Europe where she could pretend she was a widow and hide her shame. Or go up to any of the other colonies available. Okay, so here's my thing. I think it does a real disservice to the text because there's a lot of Hester that we just don't know about for Mm. all of her introspection. They never talk about her economic situation. Like, we know she dresses well, but maybe those are old dresses. Maybe she can't afford another transatlantic move. And they never talk about her own religious and political views. Like, did she want to move there for her own beliefs, or was this totally her husband's idea and he dragged her along? But it's not like a kind of realist narrative, is it? It's very allegorical. I don't even know why he bothered to say it during a particular moment in history. I feel like it just just feels like a bunch of floating minds worrying about their souls it just felt like a sort of mad prose poem 
Uh, so Hester eventually gets out of jail and sets herself up in a cottage in the woods on the outskirts of town. Like a lone Sanderson sister. There's even a bit about how the local kids wonder if she's a witch and they, you know, sneak up to her windows at night to see what, like, magic she's up to. And I really do wish the book went there, that it were, like, properly sexy and supernatural. Maybe she has a forbidden Bigfoot encounter. I don't know. <laughs> Big feet? Um... <laughs> The serious point is that it should be like the White Ribbon, shouldn't it? You know, the um, mm-hmm. Michael Haneke film. Yeah. That we're focusing on the adults and their general mean-spiritedness, but the kids are like the future Salem witch trials yeah. people, and it's showing how they're getting all warped and they're going to be even worse. That'd that be would really be really cool, That it? would be so much better if, like, this is the breeding ground where the people who then do that, commit yeah. these atrocities later on, this is where they learned that stuff and um, took it to the... The next step, yeah. And by extension, a commentary on America. Yes, like Which that. it isn't. <laughs> but he set us up for it to be yeah. that with the customs house thing and the, the American eagle over the door. And like you think, like, right, this is going to be a real commentary. And it kind of... Sorry, we're getting into analysis already, right? But I was wondering, is, is it about <laughs> the Civil War? And is Dimsdale... No. A, is Dimsdale a Yankee and chilling with... Because he's a landowner, isn't he? Is yeah. he a southerner and... They're kind of fighting over the heart and soul of the virgin continent, not virgin. Oh, I like that. I was uh, ready to say that you were full of shit, but actually you turned that around. Yeah, well, that's, I, I didn't think it until I started writing that thing today. That's good analysis. God, that's like such good analysis. It's hitting me now. I'm like bashful around you. I'm like, do I even know you at all? It's made me bashful. Oh, wow. Thanks. It's all an allegory for the compromise of 1850. <laughs> so... But back to Hester. What's yes, please. He- what's Hester doing? <laughs> so how does Hester earn a living? Shunned and isolated on her dirt farm. It's not good, is it? Bad, bad land. I'll tell you how. She has a needle. She's a really good embroiderer. You know, you've seen that A. You think that A is good. <laughs> She's just getting warmed up. Yeah, she get, exactly. Yeah, all the other letters are going to be <laughs> even better. Uh, so you think Puritans don't care about like finery and fripperies and stuff, but it actually turns out that the you know your top magistrates, your Daniel, Daniel Danforth the types, fourth. the fourths. Well, this is probably Daniel Danforth the second or something. Okay. Um, they love the bling for their ceremonial robes, big collars, big cuffs, yeah. big floppy hats. Uh, Hester actually ends up setting the fashion in town through her sewing and manages to influence all the people who scorn her. Weirdly, though, she stops wearing fancy clothes herself, doesn't she? Goes back to your standard weeds, women's weeds. So just, you know, your plain, your coarse dresses. Only maybe to set off her elaborate scarlet A. So it's like wearing a, a diamond necklace over a bin bag. Is that something you've done before? <laughs> She's a discount diva for the ages. <laughs> what's, um, what's the thing that the kids are saying now? It's that word, riz. Hester is poor in money, but she's rich in riz. You are staring so blankly. Smiling and nodding. Just keep going, Daniel. I can't. I don't know. I was like a diamond necklace over a bin bag. It's like something they wear at the Met Gala. <laughs> Ain't it? A child. Remember, Hester has a kid. Her child dresses in the most elaborate fineries, flights of fancy finery fripperies, doesn't she? Daniel, it's rare that one would say a baby is serving c- but there is simply no other expression okay. for it. <laughs> what's that, is, that again? <laughs> that, is, that's, that is being fabulous to the nth degree. And that's what the baby's doing. That is what it's Hawthorne tells us. That he's like, this kid's fits be fitting. She's got Riz up the wazoo. It's covered in vomit and stuff, but otherwise... <laughs> looks good sometimes that improves something i don't know so all hester's money that she doesn't need for immediate survival either goes 
toward putting our kid in nice, you know, haute couture, or it's given in charity to the poor, many of whom, you know, basically spit on Hester, even though they're happy to take her money. So she's tolerated in town, but only just. But what of Hester's kid? Well, she's a little girl called Pearl. This is the most puritanical gender reveal party I've ever heard of. They're so uptight, we don't even find out the kid's gender till she's like three years old. Mm. They just keep calling her it. Hester named her Pearl, not because she resembles a pearl in any way, but because she's her mother's only treasure. And also Hester paid a great price for her in becoming shunned. Uh, there's a biblical story about a merchant who sells everything he has to buy a single pearl. Hester, she's also a little bit wary of the kid. Pearl's a bit strange, isn't she? She was born from an act of pure evil. Hester wonders how anything good can come of the child. Surely God wouldn't answer bad with good, would he? So now we focus on Pearl for a while, and the narrator talks about her as though she were a serious weirdo. He's like, oh, she contains all these wildly sophisticated multitudes, and Pearl has this troublingly fiery, disobedient spirit. And Hester wonders if Pearl is a human child or, quote, an imp of evil, emblem and product of sin. There's your Puritan kid name. <laughs> <laughs> You have two. Emblem, product. (laughs) Hester says she only feels okay about the kid when Pearl is asleep. I'm like, honey, that's just parenting. (laughs) What Hawthorne actually describes to us, though, is a pretty normal toddler who likes to play and can't always be reasoned with perfectly. At most, I would say that Pearl has a homeschooled energy. (laughs) So people in town are a little weirded out by Pearl because she hasn't been socialized with other kids. So from the time she's a toddler, whenever she and Hester walk into town, if the other kids talk to her, she refuses to speak. If they try to play with her, she throws rocks at them and screams in toddler gibberish, which people think sounds like a witch's chant. When Pearl's at home, this is this is really spooky, mm-hmm. she plays pretend and has imaginary friends and plays with her little dollies. Yeah. And when Hester sees her doing this, she falls to her knees and prays, asking what horrors she has brought into the world. It's fine if it's a doll, it's bad if it's a poppet. <laughs> that's, that's what I thought the rule was. But worst of all is that sometimes Pearl notices the scarlet letter on Hester's bosom, and that's really creepy. Why would a kid be drawn to that occasionally? <laughs> you know, the big sparkly red and gold thing in a world of gray, right on the place where the kid gets fed and comforted? Oh, what a horrible sign that the kid is drawn to it, the narrator thinks. It's too much for Hester to bear. And I really hate this Hester. I want them to bring back the proud haughty fuck you hester from the beginning as soon as she's off that scaffold she completely collapses and she never gets her riz back groove back no she never gets her groove back either them cheeks are done clapping all over town and that's sad <laughs> the point is the kid is equal parts weirdo and fashionista hawthorne said it here first le freak c'est chic so one day hester goes to the governor to deliver some gloves she embroidered for him. But she also has an ulterior motive. (laughs) Uh, She's heard, we don't know how, we don't know from whom, that the governor wants to get a little bit, and by a little bit, I mean a lot (laughs) bit, stricter with the moral laws in the colony. And there's been some noise about taking Pearl away from Hester as a result. 
So they've noticed that this perfectly normal toddler is weird and they apparently think it's because of Hester's immoral influence. They're gonna put Pearl into the foster care system to save her immortal soul. <laughs> Call CPS, the kid plays with dolls. Hester went out of her way to dress Pearl as much like the Scarlet Letter as possible for this visit. This like, is... like an American like a school pageant where you dress as a big steak. <laughs> or something or a big piece of fruit right That's did, the, you do that right that is known to happen did you ever were you in a school play ever well we never had those sorts of like pageants that I see mm. on American cartoons mm-hmm. I mean I have been in school plays but they were but who were you please tell us my standout role was a historical figure go on have a guess Thomas Cromwell close very close Oliver Cromwell no oh. less close a contemporary of Thomas Cromwell uh, Thomas More. A more famous contemporary of Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell. Henry VIII. Yes. You uh, played Henry yes, VIII. Yes, to some acclaim. Your nana's acclaim. Yeah. The kids were laughing. I was shouting off with their head. It was a funny performance. I'm sure it was. And also, I did a dance uh, with a bunch of other people. We kind of did a sort of what a gavotte or something. something like yeah. That. Yeah, or an almain. So yeah. Hester's getting Pearl to dress a bit like the Scarlet Letter, and it seems like it's some kind of like you know psyop. To, to freak out the governor. The narrator really hits us over the head with this. He's like, Pearl is, quote, the scarlet letter in another form, a scarlet letter endowed with life. We oh, get yeah, it, yeah, Hawthorne. It, like, yeah. it was much nicer before you kept hitting us over the head with it. I like it when a book does the analysis for you, though. So, yeah, we get it. On the walk there, some local kids see Hester and Pearl and decide to throw mud at them. Pearl's like, not on my watch, f***os. I'm going to mess you up. <laughs> And she charges them and scatters them like pigeons. Good on you, Pearl. The children are terrified and start thinking of Pearl as some kind of scarlet fever, red death figure come to life. Awesome. Or that Pearl was, quote, a half-fledged angel of judgment whose mission was to punish the sins of the rising generation. That's cool. They called me that in kindergarten, too. In your reports. (laughs) (laughs) They reach the governor's house and wait around while he finishes up his business. Pearl plays around in the sunshine and is amused by the governor's old suit of armour. And she wants to pick a rose in the garden. A bit like an evil demon would do. <laughs> so, that's another black mark against her. The narrator keeps trying to sell this. Like, this is something really weird for kids to do. She's like, yeah, can I pick a flower? The governor comes out chatting Massachusetts business with some of his powerful dude bros. It's hard to take a super pack seriously when it's full of men with collar doilies. One of whom is, the narrator goes out of his way to point out, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale. Do you remember him? You do remember him, because it's a short book in it, you don't really... Well, there are about four named characters, and we last saw him ten pages ago, yep. So, he was the guy that tried to convince Hester to reveal her baby daddy's name. Oh, why are we focusing on him? Oh, no reason! Well, who should also be with him? But old Roger Chillingworth. Hester's on-again, off-again hubby. He's become a powerful doctor in town. He's also good friends with Arthur Dimsdale now, and that's good, because Arthur looks like shit. (laughs) His health has really suffered, and it's because he just pours everything he has into his ministry, so he's really like a man of the cloth, isn't he? I wrote a prefab here. Lay it on me. I said Dimsdale is equal parts neurotic and compelling. He should be called Woody Allen Rickman. Yeah, that's quite good, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) You're not sold on that one! There'll be no... uh, 
Silly incantations and wand waving in this class. How's that? You're going Harry Potter when you could have gone Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Alan Rickman literally says, cancel Christmas in that movie. Like a Puritan. (laughs) (laughs) So these powerful men visiting the governor, they eventually stumble across Pearl and Hester in the governor's house waiting for his meeting to end. And the men are like, ugh, cute kid, I guess. Is she a rescue? And they begin to query Hester about why she should get to keep her own child. Now, Hester has a great answer for this. She goes, oh, I've learned so much, and I'm so ashamed by my big letter A that I can actually teach my daughter not to repeat my mistakes. Leave her with me to see how hard and horrible life is when you disobey God and smart men like yourselves, etc., etc. And the men are like, hmm, very wise, but we'll be watching you. That's like your elevator pitch. She's got her elevator pitch. (laughs) Didn't even have lifts back then, did they? And she's already done it. They only have lifts in their pumps. Very good. The men start to quiz Pearl on her religious education. And I'm like, good luck getting a three-year-old to say anything on command. Pearl, in response to this, immediately defenestrates herself out into the garden, which I thought was hilarious. I mean, they're only on the ground floor, so her chucking herself out a window to get away from these big bearded assholes is not a big deal. Still, though, quite a Catholic thing to do, isn't it? (laughs) Go out a window. So I actually thought that there was a really nice detail here where one of these old gray-haired senators examining Pearl has never experienced rejection before. Mm. He's like, what? Kids and women love me. I don't understand. And I thought that was actually a, a nice subtle moment that says a lot about power and delusion for men in the town. It's like, no, you're just powerful. People don't say no to you. That doesn't mean they like you. So the men are like, mm, I don't know, a three-year-old wasn't great on theology and would rather play in the sunny garden than talk to Mitch McConnell. So that's a sign she must be depraved and will absolutely share in her mother's criminal fate. It's all the proof we need! Hester has almost a nervous breakdown at this. She's like, oh no, I'm gonna lose my daughter. Reverend Dimsdale, you're my pastor. You know my soul better than anyone here. Won't you speak up for me? Only then... Does Dimsdale step up like, oh yeah, I can actually help here, rather than sitting around like a goddamn potato? One of these new things that we have called potatoes. <laughs> it's not one of those historical novels, is it, though? It's, uh... <laughs> so he goes on this bit of a spiel, and honestly, once Dimsdale gets up off his dead ass and starts talking, he's actually very persuasive and impassioned, and he quickly changes the other men's minds. All except his BFF, Roger Chillingworth. Anyway, we've decided Hester can keep the kid, but Reverend Dimsdale needs to take charge of this girl's religious education, which is piss poor. So the narrator proceeds to do a cheesy thing. They're like, uh, hey, do you remember, audience, how Roger Chillingworth is Hester's secret husband? Do you remember? Yes, it was five pages ago. Anyway, here's his backstory, which, of course, we already know anyway. But anyway... Chillingworth Chillingworth is determined to find out who fathered Pearl and has set up residence in the town and became a popular doctor here. They just told us this in the last chapter. We sincerely do not need a recap two pages later. We know. Previously. (laughs) The narrator says that Chillingworth learned a ton of really important medical and treatments from his time with the indigenous peoples. This this felt like very progressive. I mean, if this were in a text today, people would be furious about how woke it was. But I'm like, here it is in 1850s. Like, indigenous people have a lot of, like, empirical science 
to offer us. There's important stuff we can take from them. <laughs> Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And that these peoples have lots of wisdom and skill that we should take as seriously as European medicine. That's the point Hawthorne's yeah. making. As we know, Chillingworth has struck up a friendship with Reverend Dimsdale, who's emaciated and pale, and he's probably you know, going to die soon. Just because he's too good for the world. He's just bloody too good for it, ain't he? And they become such strong besties that they even decide to get rooms in the same lodging house. So it's a bit of a sort of odd couple reboot. One day, Chillingworth and Dimsdale ended up having a chat about how both of their jobs involved people confessing things to them. And how some men prefer to go to their deaths without ever revealing their sins. But oh, the profound relief for those who do. Get therapy! So at that very moment... Chillingworth and Dimsdale, they hear a giggle outside and Hester and Pearl are there walking down the street. Chillingworth's like, look at that kid skipping and laughing our damn head off, f***ing witch born. Gross. <laughs> I'm sorry, isn't he from Lincolnshire? But whatever, yeah. Sure, Daniel, add some bada bing into the mix. Why not? Yeah. Whatever her faults, at least Hester hasn't hidden us in. And so in case the narrator hasn't made the subjects very, very clear, the Reverend Arthur Dimsdale is clearly the baby daddy. <laughs> Father to Pearl. Like, how do you not know? Well, it helps if you're stupid. He's the clam, and he's tortured by being that clam. Or is he the grit? Yeah. Vaginal but... <laughs> reading. So this next chapter is actually titled The Leech and His Patient, meaning Chillingworth, the doctor, used to be called a leech. But it really should be titled I've Got You Now, You Son of a Bitch. Mm. So one day, Arthur Dimsdale falls asleep reading in his chair, and Chillingworth breaks into his room, sneaks up on him, and unbuttons Arthur's shirt to look at his bare chest. We've all done it. Nothing <laughs> <laughs> funny about it. Once he sees Arthur's chest, Chillingworth shudders with ecstasy and a devilish joy. Look at those nipples. <laughs> so he says, doesn't he? Oh my God, I've never seen sublime nipples. Why is he Italian? <laughs> Are you getting paid by the accent? I just imagine that's what he would talk like. I don't know. Is it because we have so few characters this time? I think so. They need to carry a lot of accent weight. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that Guido Chillingworth was load-bearing. <laughs> <laughs> have you been missing the show? Is that why you're so starved to do accents? That might be it. I'm sorry. I think they're brilliant accents. I think you should go on X Factor. Thank you. So, while this pervy undressing of your roommate definitely deserves a queer reading... Hey. Chillingworth is obviously doing this for some other nefarious reason, which we, the audience, do not know yet. This changes the character of their friendship. Chillingworth has clearly figured out, somehow, with some evidence that we, the audience, don't know, that Dimsdale is the father, and he set out to destroy him. Dimsdale, meanwhile, doesn't know that Chillingworth knows, but he's like, man, there's a really weird vibe coming from my buddy. <laughs> And Dimsdale becomes more and more tortured as he continues to be adored by his congregation, who only see his supposed holiness. So every time he goes up to give a sermon, he thinks, this is it, today's the day I'm going to confess to everyone, but he's too cowardly and he never does it. Then he starts secretly flagellating himself in his room. And it's kind of erotic, you know, like he's 
he's recommitted to religion, but in this very like embodied ecstasy sort of way. And the prefab I have here is he's a porn again Christian. Ew, hey. good. Listen, I'm I'm doing my best. Okay. And that's sad. <laughs> anyway, all this flagellation stuff, it's gross and it's too Catholic, the narrator tells us. So one night while everyone's asleep, a very tortured Dimsdale goes for a walk, and he goes to the scaffold where Hester went public with her baby. <laughs> you know, new baby just dropped. Floated the baby. Yeah. <laughs> And this is one of the most famous passages in the book. So Dimsdale, he's very torn up inside, as per usual, and he eventually outside, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. Because of the flagellating. <laughs> eventually, he lets loose a scream, and he thinks, "Good, that'll wake everyone up, and they'll come to see me, and finally, the secret will be out." But everyone here is a real heavy sleeper, and nothing happens. The only person to stir in the night is Hester Prynne. <gasps> What's she doing here? Is love truly the strongest compass? No. She's been at some man's deathbed, taking measurements for his funeral robe. And well, that's not nice, is it, when you're on your deathbed and someone starts... <laughs> Measuring! Like, a, like in the Wild West shootout with a coffin. Like a, <laughs> I love yeah, that. Let's just see what beforehand. She has Pearl with her as well. And I'm like, lady... The measurements can surely wait till morning. It is a school night. So Hester sees Dimsdale and she joins him on the scaffold. And it it's a whole family broadcasting their shame, reunited for the first time. If only someone could see it. Oh, but somebody does see it. Also walking through the town at this ungodly hour is Roger Chillingworth, also coming from the man's deathbed. And he sort of idles up to the scaffold and smirks at them. And I just think, as the kids are currently saying, this must be Hester's nightmare blunt rotation. You're making me feel very old. You are very old. You're the oldest man I know. I was always very out of touch. Chillingworth moves on, leaving the awkward family. Then... They notice a strange star in the sky. What is it? A meteor? Is it some sign from God of bad things to come? Maybe plague or war? But Dimsdale reads something different in it. Quote, We impute it, therefore, solely to the disease in his own eye and heart, that the minister, looking upward to the zenith, beheld there the appearance of an immense letter, the letter A, <clears throat> marked out in lines of dull red. The next day, one of his religious buddies is like, Hey, Reverend Dimsdale, I found your glove on the scaffold where we shame sinners. Obviously, you've never been up there. So Satan, he must have stolen your glove to try to frame you. Oh, wacky, wacky Satan. Yeah, it must be an easier way. Can't you just, like, make girls vomit and stuff? You don't have to just move <laughs> gloves around. This means you should take your gloves off when combating Satan, then. You know, you got to go harder. you got a bare knuckle box, Satan, back to hell. <laughs> also, did you see that weird comment last night? I think it looked a bit like a big red letter A. I think that means angel, because one of our highfalutin dudes died last night and became an angel. The very dude that Hester Prynne was measuring. Interesting. Dimsdale's like, ooh, didn't see that. Don't know what you're on about, eh? Yeah, probably... <laughs> Probably does mean an angel. <laughs> Next, we cut to Hester, who, after last night's strange meeting, has kind of got, got the old ick for Dimsdale. <laughs> 
He's not hot anymore, is he? Quote, his moral force was abased into more than childish weakness. But don't like that, do we, listeners? I think the ick started after their first and probably only time having what was assuredly terrible sex. Oh, that's not fair. It's like a pancake, isn't it? You get you get a bad one, then, you know what I mean? You, that's a, the first one's a write-off, surely. <laughs> like pancakes. <laughs> But could we actually pause here to talk about her relationship with Dimsdale? Because, again, like, we, the audience, never actually get to see any real connection or appeal. We never see Dimsdale preaching. We're just told he's really good at it. We never see any of their relationship before Pearl or how they got together, if it was a one-time thing or a long-term thing. It's kind of hard to feel anything for them at all. Especially, like, why she's so loyal to him when she kind of doesn't even seem to mm, like him very yeah. much it is for, strange. for most of the book. Yeah, I, I really wanted some fleabag hot priest action with, like, this sexy, real connection. But instead, I got a sad sack who's kind of a bit of a pillow princess, I'm guessing. What does that mean, then? <laughs> a pillow princess is somebody who just kind of lays there, doesn't put a lot of effort into it not obeying the golden rule exactly right. he probably didn't put much welly into it right put your willy into it in fact. by the way the narrator tells us that pearl is now seven oops forgot to mention that so much time had passed yeah time has also slightly changed hester's reputation so people have got used to her and her scarlet letter and she's been so sort of meek in personality blameless in behavior charitable to the poor and the sick and so strong in our work that people have started to wonder like the a has started to sort of it's become a floating signifier ain't it hasn't it you know something for the theory types Do, could it maybe mean able now you know does it have another meaning the message is if you're super obedient and self-sacrificing your ultimate reward is people will think mildly well of you even assholes you hate especially assholes you hate i'm sure hester was desperate for their approval Yes, I think she probably was. Well, that's that's another issue I okay. have <laughs> with this book, starting in Medias Res. We never know, did Hester have any friends? Does she miss anyone after this whole Pearl thing? Is there anyone's... Pearl Gate. <laughs> Pearly Gate. <laughs> Didn't even think that. But is there anyone's respect she'd like to regain? Like, we don't really feel the full sting of her isolation and shame because she never talks about what it was like before. It's a completely asocial text, really, isn't it? But it's for, about... for something that's entirely about stigma, it's bizarre how unsocial it, or asocial it could be. If a woman committed sin in the forest and nobody was there to find <laughs> out, would she feel guilty? And Hawthorne seems to think, yeah, but in a way that was sort of empowering, is the answer. <laughs> anyway... Hester's also noticed that Roger Chillingworth's been sniffing around Arthur Dimsdale for quite some time. Uh, sniffing around his, his nipples. Um, <laughs> so, maybe he knows that Dimsdale is the child's father. Hester needs to act. Uh, she runs into Chillingworth one day in the woods, and she gets the ick for him, too. I mean, she already had a pretty strong ick, yeah. but it's even worse now. Yeah, he's older and uglier, but his chilling, whatever Chillingworth had that was good going for him, right? Stoic intelligence is gone and it's been replaced with a mean glittering slyness. There is not one man with a single remaining boinkable trait in this entire town. Hester, you know, having run into her estranged husband in the woods, she's like, listen, we need to have a chat. I'm gonna level with you because you clearly know anyway. Pearl's father is your buddy, Dimsdale. But whatever you're planning, stop. You're torturing the guy. 
Dimsdale's like ready to swan dive into the gaping maw of an open grave. And Chillingworth's like, baby, I'm the only one keeping your boyfriend alive. And Hester's like, yeah, keeping him alive to torture him. Better that he should have died years ago. After Pearl and Hester leave Chillingworth, they run into Dimsdale, because apparently the forest is happening today. And so, you know, it's the family reunited again. They, they almost are never alone together. And Hester and Dimsdale talk about how tortured they are. You know, lots of wheel spinning, more of the same. Eventually, Hester's like, yeah, I probably should have mentioned this before, maybe like seven years ago, but um, your roommate and BFF is kind of my husband who didn't die after all. Hmm? Oops. Also, stop being such a maudlin bitch. It's a turnoff. So they have this really long talk. It's like three chapters long or whatever. And eventually Hester gets Dimsdale to agree to flee with her on a ship back to Europe and start a new life somewhere else where he won't be tortured by his hypocrisy in the community. So this puts a little Tabasco back in him. All right, babe, let's do it. Let's go to Europe and sing Barry White straight into each other's genitals. Dimsdale is super on board with this plan. My pillow princess is back. <laughs> Hester takes down her hair, which is sexy, and then she removes the scarlet letter from her dress, which no. is even sexier. Not a dry eye in the... Wait, what is it people have? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to explain to you the various gels that people secrete, Daniel. Wow, that's what's going on. <laughs> so Pearl, who's been sent off to play by the stream, comes back and she sees her mother without the scarlet letter on. And she freaks out and starts screaming and won't come near her mother until her mother goes back to looking normal. This kid is a real mood killer, as, as most kids are. Mm -hmm. Okay. Daniel, you better be opening your mouth to compliment me and not to say, now we enter endgame. Listeners, I don't mean to tell you we're entering endgame. Why have you, why has that become a thing? Is it just because you're getting a reaction yeah, from so. me? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, like everything I do. Um, <laughs> so there's a big public holiday for election day. Everybody's partying it up in town as much as a Puritan can party it up. <laughs> Hester goes to talk to a ship's captain with whom she secretly booked a passage to Europe. But she also finds out that yet another person has booked passage on the ship. Roger Chillingworth. Yeah, Roger Chillingworth. So he's going to hunt them to the ends of the earth. Bit of Moby Dick going on. Bit of Frankenstein. Franken Frankenstein. Javert and Jean Valjean. Oh, very good, yes. It's time for Dimsdale to give his big sermon. And he gives a big impassioned speech that endears him to the people even more. If you could imagine that. Everyone loves him, and now they love him that little bit more. You didn't think it was Poss? It is Poss. At the end of his speech, <laughs> Dimsdale does something shocking. He calls up those sinners, Hester and, quote, my little Pearl, to join him before the town. Sensing he's about to confess, Roger Chillingworth rushes up and is like, Oh, don't blacken your name in town by confessing, you fool. Shut your mouth so I can keep emotionally putting my cigarette out on you. And Dimsdale's like, Oh, but Chillingworth, I must speak my truth. And he's like, No, silence, ashtray. So Dimsdale ignores him. And then when Hester and Pearl join him, he tells the whole town that Pearl is his child. He was the grit, uh, so to speak. And then he rips open his shirt. Check out these. Exactly, yeah. We finally see what it is that Chillingworth had noticed when he pervily undressed Dimsdale in his sleep. 
all those years ago or months or it's hard to tell hard to tell yeah dimsdale has carved a scarlet letter into his own bosom which is probably i would say i don't know about you abby but i think this is probably the most death metal thing he's ever done his chest looks like a desk in detention <laughs> yes well yeah punishment yet again Chillingworth says thou hast escaped me Dimsdale then immediately collapses from the strain and he dies in Hester's arms motherfucker never paid her a single penny in child support I hope Hester's able to make a claim on his estate obviously this causes a bit of to do in town it's a big rowdy public holiday Dimsdale gave a great speech revealed himself to be Hester's secret baby daddy, and then he promptly died in front of everyone. Big day for him, isn't it? Yeah, Dimsdale's really flooding the system. Can you imagine how many crimes you could slip under the radar for, like, a year while everyone's bandwidth is following <laughs> this? That's, yeah, this is the perfect time for the new governor to come out with some, like, Draconian, bad like, yeah, bad or, policy. Or just, like, to renege on promises. <laughs> Over the next few days, this death also seemingly destroys Chillingworth, who kind of slowly fades away now that his sole reason for living revenge is gone and chillingworth dies within the year leaving his entire huge estate to pearl Hooray. she quickly becomes the town's greatest heiress i'm really sad that we don't get a portrait of how pearl treated all the kids who were mean to her now that she's got that serious fuck you money so everyone starts kissing pearl's ass and the narrator says that despite pearl's illegitimacy even the stuffiest of old wealthy families in town would have been happy for her to marry into their dynasties. Whatever dynasties. Oh, my family have been in Massachusetts for half a generation. (laughs) Instead, Hester and Pearl pack up and move back to Europe. As you obviously would, I think. Years and years later, Hester inexplicably returns to Boston and moves back into her old cottage out in the woods. Who's living there now? Don't care. Get out. (laughs) But where's Pearl? The townsfolk ask. Is she living or did she die young? Did she marry? Did Europe soften her weirdo ways? Hester never says. Although occasionally she's spotted receiving letters from Europe bearing aristocratic seals. Oh, 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 oh. (laughs) It's got a wig on it. (laughs) And sometimes she's seen embroidering lavish baby clothes. Hester keeps wearing her scarlet letter until the day she dies. Can I just say something as well, right? Hester's embroidering lavish baby clothes. The assumption is for her grandchild or something, yeah. right? You're posting that back to Europe. By the time it gets there, the kid's probably... <laughs> That's a good point! <laughs> you know, old, grown out of it. And then after she's died, she's buried next to Arthur Dimsdale. The end. Okay, so would you like some casting? Sure would. So I was thinking, much like when we did Pamela, which was incredibly like overwrought and full of unfilmable internal monologue and a lot of sentimental morality, we have to turn this text on its head, like they, like they did with the adaptation Easy A, which I thought was a really good adaptation of this. I think... This should be a mean-spirited Armando Iannucci comedy. Kind of like Death of Stalin. Mm. For doing that sort of period piece that is not in the period yeah. at all. I want Steve Buscemi as Chillingworth. Rupert Friend as Dimsdale. And I was thinking Aubrey Plaza or Ali Wong would make really funny Hesters. Mm. 
I quite like that idea. Yeah. And now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. The only good thing to have come out of this book was a joke my mom made about her divorce in relation to it. One star. <laughs> What's the joke? That's the whole review and you didn't tell us what the joke was? I don't know how Hawthorne died, and I'm too lazy to Google it, but considering this self-indulgent, overwritten piece of so-called literature, my guess is he choked on his own dick. One star. Harsh but fair. If we're being honest, I didn't even read it, but it was still gut-wrenchingly disgusting. One star. No, it's not! I wish it were disgusting! What is wrong with you people? Analysis. Morality. What is learned? What does Hawthorne want us to take away from this? Isn't it more trying to find the root of a certain American kind of temperament and kind of criticising it because they're so... Well, they're, it, it's not gut-wrenchingly disgusting, is it? But they are. there is a lot of gut-wrenching. They are so mithering all the time mm. and guilty and kind of toing and froing it constantly. I feel like it's a an attack on a certain kind of Puritan morality. And we just did Ethan Frome, where we can mm. see a, a very clear line between the mithering here and the mithering that Wharton would be writing about 60 years They're later. very similar in that respect, yeah. But Hawthorne doesn't make that point explicit. He, he gives us a lot of mithering, but he doesn't really do anything with it. There's, as we said, very little commentary on the American psyche or what is sort of born out of this. Because it's a very allegorical novel, really, isn't it, I'd say, or like a kind of philosophical novel. I think it's more about trying to explore the contours of a certain mentality than it is trying to necessarily explain something or necessarily illustrate something, if you know what I mean. But he's often quite heavy-handed with his writing, and he very painfully gives us that bit in the essay at the front where it's like, look at the American eagle above the door. And he sets us up to be like, this is going to be a commentary on America. And then he, he does nothing with it. He completely drops the ball. Well, does he? Because I feel like that bit was ironic, isn't it? Because he talks about the big American eagle and its thunderbolts and arrows. And then he's like, but it's a crappy old custom house. So he's kind of, there's this perverse urge to undercut yourself all the way through the book. And that's, that's kind of what the characters do as well, isn't it? That they kind of let themselves down even when they don't need to. I, it's a really strange read it just it was very strange to me where at the end i was like okay what would you like us to take away what what have you after this sort of experiment or exercise what have you hawthorne taken away if anything and i'm not saying it has to be a clear moral no of course not no, that's no, no, that's no, yeah. you know we're you not something a bit more concrete but i just like something to grip onto because at the end i'm like okay you know when you're like looking at sort of clouds kind of converging and breaking mm. and there's like light breaking through it was kind of a bit like that it felt it was almost like a sort of yeah <laughs> intellectual lava lamp of a book from, <laughs> rather than, I went in thinking it was going to be a historical novel slash whodunit and it is not that at all and I was kind of pleasantly surprised by that Poe is like that too as well though isn't he all that stuff about interiority there is a real kind of romantic style focus on interiority especially in american literature yeah at the, at to the detriment period. of all other externalities it just it felt like even though poe was as we said in that episode treading a lot of the same water coming back and worrying over these same ideas it felt like he was kind of getting somewhere or had more to say this at the end i was just like okay and where have we gotten yeah with i think this? is not as good yeah <laughs> i mean house of the seven gables is like that too isn't it that really doesn't really do anything i kind of think that's a bad book yeah 
Let's talk about form though. Can we talk about that prolonged essay at the beginning, which is like a quarter of the, is it what, a quarter of the book? But it, like, why start your book on this thing that kind of never, it never comes back. We never have the- Him back at the- We yeah. never have him back going- Like Ethan Frome, in fact. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, doesn't have an Ethan Frome return to the present. That again felt like another short story that had been tacked on. As you're saying, it was like the cartoon before the feature yeah. film. I mean, I really liked that bit. I think it would have been a really fascinating essay on its own. They're more like counterparts, aren't they? The Custom House story and the main story. Mm -hmm. Because the Custom House story is really about like a surfeit of meaning, isn't it? It's not trying to give meaning. It's about there being too much meaning. That you go in a room full of documents that have not been properly organised and you just find some mad letter A and you're like, what's that all about? And then we get into the main story and there's just so much sort of torment going on and, and, and analysis that you n end up with no real conclusion. It kind of just paints grey on grey or whatever, doesn't it? It just becomes a complete abstract thing. And I feel like that's the point, that the custom house is a parallel to that and it's kind of almost saying that there is no meaning. I feel like it's quite a nihilistic text at heart. We kind of force meanings onto things and get all hung up about it, but really there's kind of nothing really going on underneath. Well, let's talk about that then. Let's talk about the, all the big moments of interpretation. Yeah. Because the, novel, a, the yeah. novel is full of them. So there's the letter A. There's also the comet. Yeah. Where, you know, people are looking up at the sky saying, it kind of looks like this, and I think it means that. And it's a very solipsistic like dimsdale thinks though this letter a is it's just for pointing me, me. It's, yeah it's yeah. pointing at me and you know the other guy in town's like it is because of our good friend who just died and is now an angel when in reality it's like i'm sorry you think the universe is writing in a times new roman font and like the her letter a as well the fact that they never say adultery in the book we're just kind of meant to know mm. it's a sort of this meaning that is imparted and we kind of have to guess it we have to fill in those blanks ourselves but it changes over time where she's more respected in town so what does it mean again we forgot oh does it mean able also pearl as an extension of the a yeah it, is the a meaningless is the a all too meaningful and forever stamped on hester's soul does the A have a place within society that changes throughout Esther's life? Yeah. And it's kind of all of the above. Okay, so, yeah, there are a couple of other little medical things I wanted to talk about, just to, just to run them by you. Is Pearl supposed to have an autism reading? Because they keep talking about her as this fairy child or this imp, and that was a very classic... Mm idea back in the day of, yeah, Changeling. Of, of describing children with autism where they're like oh the fairies have stolen her she's a fairy child or mm. whatever they keep saying that and i don't know that the text actually backs that up in any significant way i mean people of hawthorne's generation wouldn't have known had a concept of that either so surely it's more that you have a whole continuum of things that you might not like about a kid and all of those you attribute to the fairies yeah well, there was another medicalized thing where I, I wrote an article recently about atropine in oh, yeah, yeah. 19th century texts. Purple cloud. Yes. Yes, it was that article. And there was a scholar named Jemshed Khan who read this text, and he, he has medical training, and he saw Arthur Dimsdale's symptoms as less psychosomatic and more as classic symptoms of nightshade poisoning. And he his theory was is Chillingworth, who is known to be Dimsdale's doctor and constantly mm. treats him, is he slowly poisoning him? And he him? knows the plants and everything. And he yeah. knows the plants because he's been out with the indigenous people. And Hester worried at the very beginning, Roger, are you going to poison me? Mm. You've given me this uh, medicine. Yeah. 
So he read that as quite a convincing, like, all the classic symptoms of nightshade poisoning. You know what's in the nightshade family? Tomato. Another new word. This new fruit slash vegetable we call the tomato. And, and it's poisonous. Tomato, uh, they thought tomatoes were poisonous because tomatoes are very absorbent and people were eating them off of lead plates. It was absorbing lead and making people sick. Right, I'll stop doing that at home. As <laughs> a tip for you listeners. This critic got a lot of pushback where people are like, no, it's psychosomatic. And I was like... Well, it's neither, isn't it? I keep, that's why I keep thinking about these sorts of books. Is it's neither, right? Is Arthur Dimsdale dying of psychosomatic results of guilt? Is he literally being poisoned by the guy that he has wronged? Yeah. I mean, you don't really need to think of them as mutually exclusive. Do you? They're kind of counterparts in many respects. And the fact that Chillingworth is a poisoning influence whispering in his ear yeah, all exactly. the time yeah, anyway. Yeah, it's a kind of, it's an extended it, it, metaphor. It does, it? Yeah, it, yeah. Well, I liked it. I, I didn't have a problem with Khan's theory about that. I thought that was kind of fun where I was like, yep, even if it's not, it does map on that those are the yeah. sort of exact symptoms. If you can read that there, that, that it's there, right? It's not like there's a kind of canon reading of the book. Yeah. Especially a book like this. All right. Should we have some advice then? Yep. So this book, as we talked about, has a really extended intro. And when you see extended intros like this, especially when the author is writing more as himself or herself, that can often operate as a bit of theory. So we've seen it on the show before with Mark Twain and Huckleberry Finn or Oscar Wilde and Dorian Gray. And these little essays tell us how the author wants us to read the book. So try to look for some important themes there. Now, whether you actually think that's how the book should be read or not is another thing, but this at least gives you some clues about what the author thinks is important. Right, and now our clue to the next episode. So Daniel, there are a lot of housekeepers in literature. Sherlock Holmes, The Secret Garden, Gone with the Wind, some of them have even made it onto our show. Jane Eyre, Turn of the Screw, Ethan Frome, two housekeepers and Pamela, but these women are always secondary or tertiary characters. What if a text focused a lot more on a housekeeper's wants and needs? Ooh, uh, <laughs> Diary of a Housekeeper. Yeah. That book. Yeah. <laughs> right, so please subscribe wherever you listen. Write to us at myshelf at gmail.com if you have any suggestions or tweet us at smfms underscore podcast. Find us on TikTok and Instagram. Join our Patreon. We'll be doing another book group sometime around early March. And we will see you guys in one month's time. Do keep an eye out next week for our first bookends episode. And so we enter bookend game. <laughs> Daniel, I hate you so much! Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Centre for Critical Inquiry and to Society and Culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm going to remind you, do not forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Do not forget. Thank you. 